This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. Imagine the most hellish environment there is. There's lightning and dust, winds of thousands of kilometres a second. It's also the brightest object in the universe, a supermassive black hole that eats a star every day. Well, that has actually just been found by a bunch of Aussies. We're going to be speaking to one of the researchers who made this incredible find, a black hole surrounded by the biggest and brightest disk of matter ever discovered. That's coming up a bit later on this podcast. Also coming up, we're asking why more musicians aren't heading to the bush to perform. What is going on with regional touring? We're going to get into that. First, though. Hack. People who arrive by boat get sent offshore. That's the measures we're putting in place. On Triple J. Yeah, Australian politics is again being dominated by talk of asylum seekers after a boat made it to WA last week. Border policies have been argued for decades in Australia. Lots and lots and lots of debate in Parliament, outside, elections being fought on border policies. Chances are you probably recognise political slogans like Stop the Boats, which became popular in Australia and is now being used by politicians overseas. The issue of asylum seekers has a long and complicated political history. So what is the backstory? Well, our political reporter Shalala Madora explains. A small town in WA's Kimberley region suddenly found itself making national headlines late last week. Australian Border Force have arrived in the remote Indigenous community of Beagle Bay. The men, believed to be from Pakistan and Bangladesh, are in the main street of Beagle Bay, 100 kilometres north of Broome. The men have been taken to the kindy at the local school and been given pillows following the interviews with Border Patrol. All up, 39 men were found. They'd hopped off a boat from Indonesia. Are you planning to claim asylum? Yeah, I'm I'm in there because I I don't want to go back to Pakistan. All men have now been sent to the island nation of Nauru for processing. That is to see if their claims for asylum stack up. But their arrival has reignited a long-running political debate about borders, refugees and national security. Operation Sovereign Borders is in place. Uh, If you arrive here by boat, you will not be settled here. People smugglers sniff a week later, and that's exactly what has happened here. To really understand why this issue gets so much coverage, we have to step back in time a bit. Between 2007 and 2013, tens of thousands of asylum seekers attempted to arrive in Australia by boat. Tragically, around 1,100 lost their lives at sea. Babies and children were among 80 people on an Indonesian fishing boat which crashed into rocks at Christmas Island. A major rescue operation is continuing tonight on remote Christmas Island where at least 27 asylum seekers have lost their lives. This was the refugee boat just seconds before it was swamped by huge waves. The coalition, that is the Liberal and National parties, said Labor, who were in charge at the time, had lost control of the borders. They introduced a strict new policy called Operation Sovereign Borders. Operation Sovereign Borders is a military-led border security operation. In a nutshell, Operation Sovereign Borders was about using our armed forces to turn asylum boats back at sea and processing all boat arrivals offshore in places like Nauru and Manus Island, which is in Papua New Guinea. My fellow Australians, tonight I want to speak to you about a matter of great importance to all of us. In 2013, while trying to win re-election, Kevin Rudd went one step further. 
saying no one who tried to come by boat would ever be allowed to call Australia home, even if Australian authorities found them to be refugees. People who come by boat now have no prospect of being resettled in Australia. Instead, they could choose to return to their home countries or attempt resettlement in a third country. Practically, many were left languishing in offshore detention for years on end. The government of Australia has changed. After it lost the 2013 federal election to Tony Abbott, Labor decided to support Operation Sovereign Borders too. The policies of the two major parties on this are, for all practical purposes, identical. Dr Abul Rizvi is the former Deputy Secretary of the Immigration Department. He says the focus on boat arrivals deliberately overlooks the thousands of people who seek asylum after arriving in Australia by plane. We are talking about a few dozen people, a tiny, tiny, tiny number compared to almost 110,000 asylum seekers in Australia, the vast bulk of whom arrived by aeroplane when Mr Dutton was Home Affairs Minister. So back to the Beagle Bay boat. Peter Dutton, who's now the opposition leader, has questioned if the government has cut back on resourcing border protection. I don't know whether the same level of surveillance is being undertaken as was the case when we were in government. But the Border Force Commissioner Michael Outram, who's in charge of Operation Sovereign Borders, says that funding for the program is higher than ever. Here's Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill. This operation is better resourced and better backed by our government than it has ever been before. Mr Dutton has also criticised the government for scrapping temporary protection visas. These were the short-term visas that people would get if they arrived before Operation Sovereign Borders began in 2013. Labor scrapped them last year. It's all that layer upon layer uh, of weakness displayed by the government that is what emboldens people smugglers. But as the PM points out, those visas only apply to people who are in Australia and were never part of Operation Sovereign Borders. Are these people on temporary protection visas? No, they're on Nauru. They're on Nauru. People who arrive by boat get sent offshore. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. I do want to unpack this issue a little more, but zoom out a bit because border policies are being debated not just in Australia but around the world and experts in this area are saying they're becoming more restrictive globally. So what does that mean? Dr Daniel Geselbash is with the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW and he's with us now. G'day Daniel, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. Australia is well known around the world for its border policies, particularly things like offshore processing, turning back boats. People call it the Australian model. But what I found interesting when I started to look into this is that Australia actually took this idea from the US, right? That's correct. So, I mean, the main pillars of that policy, both intercepting and turning boats back at sea, uh, as well as offshore processing, uh, were originally pioneered in, in the United States. Guantanamo Bay, which is better known for the location where the U.S. held uh, enemy combatants captured during the War, of T- War on Terror, was in fact originally a migrant processing centre. And the reason they chose it to detain captured in the, in the War on Terror was for the same reasons they used it to detain asylum seekers, because it's this territory beyond the reach of domestic U.S. law, which let the government dispense with so the legal requirements and rights that would uh, flow to those people being held there if they were held on the mainland. Uh, you know, we didn't have our own Guantanamo here in Australia, so we turned to our Pacific neighbours 
to create a, a similar regime where we can send asylum seekers where they are beyond the reach of the protections they would have under Australian law. Yeah, it's very interesting and people may not be aware of the full history and the different countries that have adopted these policies. Can you remind us of what the concept of asylum is, where it came from, why we have it? It's an ancient concept. Uh, it goes back to ancient Greek times and, and even before then. But really, you know, its current manifestation that was devised in the aftermath of World War II and it was uh, in particular in response to the failure of states to grant asylum to people fleeing Nazi Germany. The illustrative story on this is the, the journey of the SS St. Louis, which was a German ocean liner, which departed at Hamburg in 1939, carrying almost a thousand passengers, most of whom were Jewish refugees. And you know, they first they headed to Cuba. They had landing documents there, but they were rejected from being allowed to depart from the vessel. And they attempted to reach the U.S., but were intercepted by the U.S. Coast Guard. And eventually they made their way back to Europe and a significant number ended up losing their lives in Nazi concentration camps. And so the cornerstone of the Refugee Convention was the principle of non-refoulement. And that is the protection against being sent back to a place where an individual would face persecution. So where are we now? Because I know that you've said previously the international refugee protection system is in crisis. What do you mean by that? We are turning to increasingly restrictive policies around the world and limits on the ability of people to access asylum. And, you know, Australia, while not pioneering the some, you know, some of those policies we talked about, like offshore processing and both pushbacks, has taken them to implement them in a, in a far more reaching way than had applied elsewhere. So, you know, we've taken the extraordinary step of basically completely blocking access to asylum for people to try and reach Australia without authorization. And while we still remain one of the only liberal democracies in the world to do that, the fact that we've managed to do it and get away with it has set, set a very bad example around the world. And there's many countries uh, that are adapting or looking at adapting elements of those policies, particularly offshore processing in the UK in particular, around setting up third country transfer arrangement with Rwanda. And even the language that we, the government used around stopping the boat is being ad adopted by the government in the UK now. In the broader picture is this sort of competitive landscape where you know, governments are keeping a very close eye on what other countries are doing. And when countries adopt very restrictive policies like we have in Australia, it creates this, this sort of competitive dynamic and this pressure on other states. And so what we're seeing is this sort of race to the bottom um, and the end point of which is ability to access asylum. And unfortunately, a return to that situation, the passengers of SS St. Louis face where people in immediate danger uh, will have nowhere to flee to. Well, yeah, I mean, the issue seems to be that every country has its own policy, that they're obviously trying to protect their own interests. Is there any way around that, though? I mean, it all comes back down to politics and framing. And premise that underlies all this is this view that you know, the public want and demand restrictive asylum policies. And basically those sorts of policies are a vote, vote winner. And the flip side of that, it's the sort of political kryptonite to talk about more humane to refugee policies. But I think that's in some ways mixing the cause and effect. And the fact that politicians are pushing these restrictive policies could be what is driving public opinion. So really the, the only way around this is kind of winning the hearts and minds of the public and the most effective way to do that would be through principled political leadership. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Daniel Gesselbash, an expert in international refugee law at UNSW, about uh, asylum seeker policy, not only in Australia, but around the world, the history of it as well.
Daniel, the thing is a very legitimate concern I think a lot of people do have is people who are arriving by boat, dying at sea and propping up horrible people smuggling operations. We've seen uh, horrible cases in the past. Every year there are incidences in the Mediterranean, for instance, of people drowning. How do you prevent that? Like if you are accepting asylum seekers into a country, that is going to lead to a boom in people smuggling and an increase in deaths at sea. Is there a way of combating that, of being able to have more open asylum seeker policies while also stopping those people's smuggling practices? I think it's a really legitimate concern, but I think it tends to be kind of weaponized by governments around the world to justify really restrictive approaches. And if the focus really was on safety at sea, you know, we could deploy active search and rescue capability to try and reduce the number of deaths at sea. And there is precedent for that. So Italy did that in, I think, around 2013. They had really large-scale operation in the Mediterranean. Almost no people died at sea during that period. Uh, but it's a kind of deliberate decision to not deploy search and rescue capability because that gives rise to obligations to people once you rescue them. And so, you know, if governments are actually, if that really is the reason, there are other ways uh, we can address that. So it's all about providing safe alternatives for people to be able to access protection. Given there's generally absence of other options, that is what forces people to take dangerous journeys um, at sea and also across land borders. And people wouldn't put their lives at risk in that way if there were alternative options available to them. What do you think the solution is? What do you think needs to be the biggest priority for countries like Australia right now? I think it's really about the message that we want to be sending the rest of the world. Sort of this restrictive approach that we've adopted and not just Australia, but many liberal democracies around the world. And these are the countries which have the greatest wealth and resources to provide access to protection. If we're not doing our fair share and we're blocking access to protection, that sends a very poor message to countries in the developing world, which currently shoulder responsibility for the vast number of refugees. I think that's a very important point to underscore, which is only a very small proportion of refugees actually make it to countries like Australia or the US or to Europe. There's definitely a lot to think about there. And Dr. Daniel Gazelbash from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW, thank you for your time and for joining us on Hack. Thank you so much and thank you for having me on the show. Hack. For us to be able to play here and have everyone standing and dancing is so normal for us. On Triple J. All right, when we got the news last week that Groovin' the Moo was being canned this year, we heard from so many people in regional Australia saying this is the last thing we need. It's already been really tough to see a live gig where I live. Why is it that artists aren't heading to the bush as much as they used to, especially if the demand is there? Are they missing out, or these musicians who aren't going to country areas? And is this trend having an impact on the interest young people have in seeing live music locally? Well, reporter Bridget MacArthur's been keen to find out. She's got more from Bunbury. When I moved to regional WA, one of the first things I did was go to a gig at the Prince of Wales, which is a well-known live music venue in Bunbury. It was a Thursday night and Jack Davies and the Bush Chooks were playing to a crowd of maybe 100 people. So definitely not a sellout, but great vibes and a decent line for merch after. Still, I did wonder, 
what are the profit margins of an almost two-hour trip down from Perth and is it worth the effort when the band probably could have drawn a much bigger crowd in the city? I had to ask. I'm really trying to branch out more into the more regional areas because I think that's what I want to do more of and I, I enjoy the, the travel of it and like trying to have a sustainable audience in lots of different places. That's lead singer Jack Davies. He's only 24 but has been performing live for about a decade and says his love of regional touring has only grown. But he says the costs do start to add up the further out you go, especially when travelling as a band. You definitely have to justify the length of the journey, but I don't think it being far away is a, is a dissentive. It just means you need to be able to back that up with some way of recouping your time and expense really on it. That said, there is at least one thing Jack reckons makes a specific venue in the regions more attractive. Albany and Bunbury, they put us up in a hotel. If it wasn't for that, that would be way harder. That's what inspired me to write this song, all about the farm that I grew up on. It's called Home. Singer-songwriter Tracy Barnett says things have definitely got harder in recent years when it comes to the regional music scene. For a solid decade, touring was her bread and butter, the way she made her money, but lately she's been finding it hard just to break even. COVID changed a heap. Everybody knows the general cost of living has risen. The cost of travel is astronomical now, but a lot of venues suffered through that time as well. So they don't have the money and the resources to be able to hire musicians at decent fees anymore either to help cover the costs of travelling. 2023 was the worst year for Aussie artists on the ARIA singles chart since the list began in 1988, with less than a dozen local artists making it onto the chart. The Australian song that had the most entries was Vance Joy's hit Riptide, which, while a banger, is more than a decade old. Tracy says she's keen to see more people making the conscious decision to support smaller local acts and regional venues. We have fantastic thrash and metal bands in Perth, but nobody gets excited to go out and see them because it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's just a local band. But then you've got someone coming over like Cole Chamber and everyone's like, it's sold out within minutes. Understandably, Tracy says all of that has left her feeling pretty disenchanted with Australia's music scene. I have fallen out of love with it a little bit now. It just got so hard and heartbreaking. (laughs) And I say again, like, I don't want this conversation to be a bummer because I'm, you know, I'm always grateful to be able to do what I do. You know, I would come home and I hadn't seen my family in six weeks and I would be completely exhausted and everything else. And you'd be like, okay, well, let's look at the growth. You know, have I got more followers? And did I break even on the tour? And you'd punch all the numbers and you'd be like, oh my God, it didn't make a difference. So why am I doing this to myself and my family? For music manager Nathan Farrell, the benefits of hitting up the regions still outweigh the costs. He regularly sends artists like Telenova and Chillinit, both from capital cities, on dedicated tours of the regions. But he says timing is key. Kind of want to make sure there's a bit of a national presence before you take that that leap. So, and some acts maybe leave it too long. The show develops, the expectation develops. The idea of going and playing to a four five hundred capacity venue in the regions is a bit daunting in itself. Also, if you excuse the self promotion, he reckons Triple J has been useful for making a name for artists in more hard to reach locations. If you get really good rotation on Triple J, you're kind of beaming directly into these places. 
But Mr Farrell says he still tries to book emerging acts as a support act first before attempting a headline tour. If they can do that and start to build up a loyal fan base in the regions, he says it can go a long way to launching a sustainable career. You've got to go out and develop audiences. If you're just doing capitals, realistically, how soon could we go back again and play Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth? It's really a valuable experience as a musician to learn how to play to different crowds. Even with there being no money in music, musicians and creatives are going to keep creating it because it's, it's literally as much a part of us as, as breathing. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, really interesting. Bridget MacArthur reporting there from regional WA. People have big opinions on this, especially if you are in the bush, if you struggle to see live acts. We're going to stay with the topic of live music, but going from regional WA to Victoria now, because there's some interesting research that's coming out this week on young people and live music. And to chat a bit more about that is Simone Schinkel from Music Victoria, which is an independent group that's all about championing local music. G'day, Simone. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. You've been looking into this and your research has confirmed young people do want to be seeing live music, don't they? There's no issue there, right? No issue at all. 78% of young Victorians emphasise that the first experience is really significant for them in engaging with live music and actually really shapes their overall and lifelong passion of getting hooked early. I was wondering what the barriers are. Like people, we spoke about this a bit last week and obviously people were bringing up cost when it came to things like music festivals, for instance. Were there other things that were stopping young people from getting to live music events that you found? Yeah, so our research has found that they actually have insufficient energy. And I think this is just one of those COVID hangovers. Obviously, public transport options are also really important and then value for money. Uh, But really, it's the worrying sign of people having to pull back on simply the number of events and number of times they're going out, which we correlate with that cost of living crisis we've got going on around us. Yeah, the lack of motivation one was interesting to me. Like it was 22%, I think, of young people who were citing that as a reason they weren't going to gigs. How do you address that? Well, I think there's a multitude of driving factors. We've obviously seen some challenges with festivals of late, but the ones that are doing really well are the ones that are in those really niche target genres. So it's like if you're in, you're all in and you're going deep and it's about this kind of extreme fandom that will motivate people to get off the couch and get out and see the music they want to see. Do you think we also need to be doing more to boost live music, I don't know, culture for younger people like under the age of 18? Definitely. It's obviously been an over 18 predominantly sort of lifestyle choice, but I think we really need to tap into those people really young. I mean, if you're at Taylor Swift and you're 12, I'm fine with that. You know, get them started young and take your kids with you to gigs, you know, take your friends and family. We joke in the office about bring a kid to work day, you know, just to get them involved and get that taste really young can only lead to a future life engagement with live music. Have young people been telling you like their relationship with music, how it how it works, what it does to, I don't know, improve their understanding of the world around them, what it means to them overall in their life? Yeah, look, we know that this can be a real moment of um, solidifying, I guess, your identity and your place in the world and coming to terms with some of those challenging big questions of life. 
Uh, so we know that fundamentally these are experiences people need to have to help them just go about their life and really live it to the max. Obviously, there's one version of doing that by listening and singing along in your bedroom, but it's just really something different when you're in there with a whole bunch of other people and you're all singing along. But even if it feels like they're singing directly to you and this song is about you, we've all been there, I'm sure. We've all been um, there. It's given me goosebumps. Usamon <laughs> Shinkle from Music Victoria, we appreciate that. It's, you know, maybe something that a lot of people would imagine. Young people are into live music, but it's good to have someone crunching the numbers um, to be able to present that to politicians, to people making policy. Thank you so much, Simone, for coming on Hack. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Got some more messages coming through. JC from Canberra says, I've got a moral principle to not only go see bands I like when they tour Canberra, but also make sure I buy merch. And someone else says, the reason that it's difficult um, to see stuff in the country, often it's poor promotion. I always hear of gigs on the day uh, before or I don't have the money to go. It's just, it's it's too much. So a lot of opinions coming through there, but unfortunately, got to move on. Hack. This black hole eats as much matter every single day as there is in our entire solar system. On Triple Jack. Hmm. When you're outside and you're looking up at the sky, it's pretty hard to imagine anything that's brighter than the sun. You catch a glimpse of it, you're like, oh... But there is something a lot brighter. It is the brightest object in the universe and it's been discovered by a group of Aussies. And it's actually a black hole. But not just any black hole, it is a supermassive black hole. It is so big and bright that it could be eating a sun every day. I don't even know what that means, but we're about to find out. Samuel Lai is a researcher from ANU and he's one of the people that's helped find this supermassive black hole. G'day, Samuel. Thanks for coming on Hack. Firstly, how big is this? Like, how do we get our head around it? So the black hole itself is 17 billion solar masses. That is, it's 17 billion times the mass of the sun. But it's surrounded by a storm that's seven light years in radius. So that's farther than than between us and the closest star to our sun. So it is incredibly beyond the scale of human comprehension. I cannot even begin to imagine this is... Incredible, right? I get the one of the questions I have is if it's so big, so bright, why has it taken so long to find it? Well, it's also uh, immensely far. So it's it's from 1.5 billion years after the start of the Big Bang. So it is incredibly far object. So from our perspective, uh, the light has passed through much of the universe across the cosmic time. And so it's uh, fainter than than it would be if we were much closer. One of your colleagues, uh, Christian Wolf, described it as what could be one of the most hellish places in the universe, <laughs> the closest thing to hell we can imagine. Can you explain what is happening with this black hole? Because when we talk about it consuming stars, the sun, what, what is it doing? How is it feeding itself? So there's this storm of material around this black hole. And it is an incredibly chaotic environment. You get magnetic fields that bounce around that that accelerate particles and they reconnect, but it also constantly is feeding from this storm. So it's eating material at the rate that you've heard of one solar mass uh, per day. Yeah, that's how it gets uh, all of its uh, luminosity from. It's from this material that's heated up. It becomes incredibly bright. So this is uh, really what he described as the gates of hell uh, you've got lightning flashing around everywhere. You've got you've got dust around, and you've got material in all sorts of directions that's that's flying about at uh, 
thousands of kilometers per second. So this is going really quick. I'm not liking the sound of it, I've got to say. Is it something we should be scared of if it's consuming so much, even though we're so far away? Should we be worried? No, I mean, it's it's incredibly far away that uh, dynamically it won't have any influence on us. And it's also from much earlier in the universe. So the scale of the universe, even though it's so incredibly large, but the universe is ever more uh, larger. Uh, we, we don't have anything to worry about in terms of uh, it affecting us uh, personally. Okay. Well, that's good to know. How did you find it? Like, what's the process like of uh, tracking something like this? So we've looked at uh, very large data sets from both NASA instruments and European Space Agency instruments. And we've taken these data sets and identified these quasars by looking at various uh, selection criteria. So these quasars are different from stars in our Milky Way in terms of their color. And so we've been filtering through these data sets looking for things that look like quasars rather than stars. And after that, we point our uh, smaller instruments at it, uh, specifically the ANU 2.3 meter telescope in Siding Spring Observatory. And from that, we characterize the object and we find that it truly is a quasar and not not a star. Wow. I mean, how excited was the team when this discovery was made? I imagine it must have been thrilling, right? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, the kinds of quasars that we were looking at are mostly uh, closer, more local quasars. So this object kind of uh, came out of nowhere because it's from such early on in the universe's history that it, uh, when it popped out of the data, it really sort of slapped us in the face. So what happens now? You just keep monitoring what you can and look for other ones, I guess. Yeah, and we've been doing an all-sky search for quasars like these. Uh, but in terms of the significance of this object is that we can continue to use this object because of how bright it is we can use it as a laboratory for future science. Wow, okay. So there's definitely a good reason to find these things. How much do we know about black holes generally? We know quite a lot. Black holes, despite being such interesting and complex objects, mathematically, they're, they're fairly simple. And it's the environment that makes them complex. So in fact, we have uh, full simulations of these black holes and their accretion disks. And we, we are continuing to learn a lot about these objects, of course. Uh, but already, uh, this is science that's happening as we speak. It's complicated. If if this isn't your job, your work, if you're not studying it, maybe it's a bit hard to get your head around. But I think you've done a really good job, Samuel, of filling us in. Samuel Lai from ANU, thank you very much. Congratulations on the discovery. It's huge. I appreciate you coming on Hack. Yeah, thank you very much. Hack on Triple J. Some messages coming in, questions. Someone says, so what happens or where does everything go when it's been gobbled up? That's what Lucas wants to know. Hey, it's a fair enough question. Maybe you can ask Dr. Carl uh, later in the week. That could be a, that could be an option. Dr. Carl will know the answer to that one. Someone else says, this just in, a sun every day keeps nothing away. It's true, Emily. Hey, that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. We'll be back tomorrow. I'll catch you then. See ya. Listener.